0: This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Mark, thanks. Good morning, everybody. Rainy day. Noam, thanks for joining us. You gave a great talk yesterday. Now, here's a strange thing. You're very well known. Yet, I think you're underestimated. And what is underestimated is your sense of humor. (laughs) I'll give you a quote. Uh, The political spectrum in the United States, always very narrow, has been reduced to near invisibility. Um, Here's another one. Uh, American policies with regard to Brazil in the 1950s, I quote, we find it hard to induce people to accept our doctrine that the rich should plunder the poor, a public relations problem that had not yet been solved.
1: That's not my quote. That's John Foster Dulles. The last last sentence about the public relations problem is mine, but his comment, Dulles, was we find the communists have an advantage over us, we find it hard to they think that the poor should plunder the rich that was his comment, and I say we find it hard to convince people that the rich should plunder the poor that's it.
0: Do you think this public relations issue has now been solved?
1: If it was, we wouldn't have... uh, global terrorism campaigns like Obama's strong campaign, uh, a thousand military bases around the world, uh, uh, overthrowing governments. Of course not. No. It's the same.
0: Hmm. Um, no, tomorrow there's a party for the 1% here in the neighborhood. Uh, we're in an era in which Hollywood celebrates... Idiots as Culture Heroes, (laughs) Great Gatsby, Wolf of Wall Street. Is there good news for the 99% and what kind of news would you be looking for? Well, the good news is people like you, people who
1: are interested in uh, overcoming the uh, extreme... Uh, narrowness of the spectrum of political discussion that you talked about, the uh, enormous inequities and oppression in the uh, society the, last night, the people who are engaged in uh, trying to end the uh, extremely ominous threat of uh, nuclear war and environmental catastrophe uh, that's the good news but that's always been the good news I mean class war goes on all the time It's usually one-sided. The business classes are very dedicated to uh, class war. They never relent, uh, constantly fighting it. And uh, the question is whether there will be an opposition. Uh, If there isn't, of course, they uh, move forward and you get periods like uh, the last generation of uh, vicious class war with no response. That's the general neoliberal Assault on the population around the world, and uh, uh, you see rising uh, opposition. That's the good news. Others are entering into the class war.
0: The counterpart to the plutocracy, the super rich, the 1% is the precariat, working in very precarious conditions, um, including. Uh, those on part-time contracts, short-term contracts, migrants, unemployed youth, seniors without a pension. Um, Do you see institutional improvements for them on the horizon?
1: Well, it's, uh, it's certainly true. I mean, from the point of view of those conducting the class war on the part of the business classes and the government closely linked to them, Uh, the best thing would be to have a population which is living a precarious existence and this is not a secret incidentally it's very well understood by those waging the war Uh, so for one of the clearest uh, statements of it was by uh, a man who used to be called saint alan before 2007 when the system he carefully constructed crashed totally uh, Alan Greenspan, the uh, uh, former uh, uh, head of the... uh, uh, The uh,
0: the, uh, the, the, the Father of Research. Yeah, uh, uh,
1: when he was testifying before Congress in the late 80s, at the time when he was late 90s, he was testifying about the marvels of the uh, terrific economy that he was running. He explained, frankly, that it was based on what he called... A growing worker insecurity mm-hmm. now from the point of view, economists that's a very healthy thing because if workers are insecure they're not going to ask for benefits they're not going to strike uh, they're not going to call for an increase in wages and you get a more healthy economy uh, that is an economy which is geared to what's called efficiency it's an ideological not an economic term uh, and uh, concentration of wealth and concentration of power and marginalization of the population. Uh, so, yes, a growing worker insecurity is very healthy for the state of the economy, but also for the society in general. Uh, if you have a global precariat, as you say, then, uh, then it's possible for... Uh, 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 the other actually there's another term that corresponds to precariat which should be brought in that's plutonomy Uh, back around uh, 2005 I think uh, Citibank uh, produced a a manual for investors uh, good advice for investors and it described the way the world scene is changing it said the world is being divided into a plutonomy and everyone else uh, everyone else is the precariat plutonomy is a small sector uh concentrated in the united states but plenty of other places uh england by now china you know india so that uh, even the poorest countries in the world there are people who are rich to the point of uh, you know it's beyond extraordinary. So there is a global plutonomy with of course heavily concentrated. Uh, then there's the precariat who uh, live under conditions of insecurity, like uh, say adjuncts in uh, uh, universities who are the temps of the university system. They're very useful for, the, for those who run the university, whether it's the legislature or the trustees or whatever it happens to be. Uh, If you have uh, a large number of temps doing the work, very low salaries, uh, no hope of advancement, uh, no possibility or limited possibility of organizing, there is actually some, but not much, Uh, then uh, they're easy to control and you get a higher efficiency in the ideological sense. So a world that's divided into plutonomy and uh, a precariat would be a kind of a perfect world. Uh, Well, uh, if uh, the precarious is willing to tolerate it as always
0: Um, last night in your talk you used the word of course and that word implies that there is a pattern and we are to recognize that pattern and in your work on language you are interested in deep patterns universal grammar and in you work on politics, likewise, you're interested in patterns, kind of a grammar of politics, which you sum up or describe in very plain language as power, profit, and doublespeak. Um, now, in the sense that this is how hegemon states, corporations, and media behave, um, of course. Now, in politics and economics, are there also questions that perplex you, that puzzle you, that fall outside the pattern or for which you have not yet found a place in the pattern or a name to give it?
1: Oh, plenty of them. In fact, uh, <laughs> I just gave a series of lectures at Columbia on the philosophy department on uh, uh, one of them was on the theme uh, of something I called f- 40 years ago problems and mysteries uh, it, uh, it's, it problems meaning by that uh, a distinction between uh, matters that we are in principle capable of understanding we may not understand them but they fall within our cognitive reach it's, you can imagine how we might understand them, those are problems uh, mysteries simply fall beyond our cognitive reach. And those are quite deep-seated. They're right in the physical sciences. Uh, they're not recognized enough, but uh, if you look over the history of the, the physical sciences, and then when you get to the social sciences, this magnifies beyond the discussion. But at the core of the physical sciences, the hard physical sciences, there are mysteries for humans which are tacitly understood to be beyond the level of understanding uh, human understanding Uh, there's classic moments of this uh, you take the early modern science scientific revolution which began basically with Galileo and his contemporaries early 17th century Uh, they wanted to overcome neo-scholastic mysticism going back to uh, with its Aristotelian origins Uh, they were confronting a scientific world in which uh, explanations were given in terms of what were called occult forces, Uh, sympathies, antipathies, uh, uh, things uh, fall to the ground because that's that's their natural place, uh, so on and so forth. They wanted to give real, Galileo and others, wanted to give real explanations. And they had a concept of explanation, of intelligibility, uh, namely... uh, had to be a mechanical explanation uh the world had to be accounted for as a machine and by machine they meant something very concrete something that an artisan could build something with gears and levers and so on and so forth and in fact it was supposed to have been built by a super skilled artisan Uh, so an an intelligible account for say galileo uh, would be uh, an account in terms of mechanical principles it was called the mechanical philosophy and philosophy just meant science in those days so mechanical science the world is a machine uh and uh, galileo recognized that he was incapable he lamented at the end of his life he'd been incapable of accounting for uh, the motions of the, of the planets uh, the tides and so on in mechanical terms so uh, Uh, This was not yet understood, but the concept of intelligibility was clear. This goes through the next century. Uh, The great scientists, uh, Huygens, uh, Descartes, uh, Leibniz, uh, Newton, all believed in the mechanical philosophy. And then a problem happened, and Newton discovered that it's false. Uh, The famous body-mind problem is based on the assumption that body is explicable in mechanical terms mind uh, descartes recognized that there are things that aren't explicable in mechanical terms Uh, actually the main one was normal use of language for good reasons in fact Uh, but so that was the basis of mind you had these two substances newton showed there are no bodies he showed that nothing is explicable in mechanical terms there are no machines This is totally misunderstood, especially in the social sciences, uh, where it's assumed that Newton showed that the world operates by mechanical principles. It's a big machine. He showed the opposite. He showed that you cannot account for it in mechanical terms. Uh, Newton regarded this as a complete absurdity. He said no person with any scientific uh, uh, intelligence could accept this, and he spent the rest of his life trying to overcome it. He had various... Uh, the problem was, how can you account for action at a distance? Interaction without contact. So how can it be that if I move my hand, I move the moon? You know, uh, There's no contact. That's the mystical force. But uh, And uh, uh, he was correct. It was an absurdity, but it was true. And it points to something that goes beyond the level of human intelligence. How can we deal with a world that's based on occult forces that we cannot comprehend Uh, we have to accept them because they're true but we can't comprehend them well what happened and this was well understood by his contemporaries by john locke uh, later david hume uh, right through the uh, 18th century since then it's been forgotten Uh, the concept science simply limited its goals Uh, the sciences since newton have not attempted to develop an intelligible account of the universe. They've lowered the goals to trying to develop theories that are intelligible. That's a much lower goal. Uh, To understand a theory is one thing, to understand what it's talking about is another thing. But that goal has been abandoned. Well, there's a dramatic example of something beyond the level of human intelligence. And it goes on from there. When you go into more complicated things than basic physics, it expands all over the place. So, for example, uh, uh, human uh, choice or animal choice is completely unintelligible to us. I mean, you can't deny that it happens. We all know perfectly well that we make choices and we make decisions. But it's completely, it's not beyond the range of existing science. Uh, No one has a coherent idea of how you could explain it. Probably because it lies beyond the bounds of uh, human cognitive capacities. I mean, if you think of the things we can understand, uh, they pretty much reduce to determinism and randomness. So we understand things being determined, like a machine. You know, you turn a lever and something else turns, uh, that, or a thermostat. I mean, that kind of thing we understand. Uh, the concept of random. Uh, behavior that was understood in the 17th century. You know, some things just happen randomly. Uh, but suppose something falls beyond the bounds of determinacy and randomness. Well, it's beyond our cognitive capacities. And that's what will and choice seem to be like. So it's not hard to find things of the kind you're talking
0: about. Um, maybe it's a good idea to talk about something simpler like neoliberalism. Uh, <laughs> That's much simpler. When, that's, easy,
1: that's easy to understand.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Actually, so,
1: it's misnamed.
0: <laughs> uh, the very idea of a, a, a struggle that is fought on only one side is interesting. Here's a question, Norm. Um, when we criticize neoliberalism, we must show its contradictions and its limitations because otherwise we do ourselves a disservice and we play for the wrong team. The outside of neoliberalism, as I see it, includes Nordic capitalism, my old neighborhood, and I know it well, and part of emerging economies, emerging societies, elements, of it, not in the sense that these are rose gardens but in the sense that they are different and the differences are robust. Do you share that view?
1: Partly, but I think we ought to take a closer look at the concept. Neoliberalism first of all is not new and it's not liberal and so the term neoliberalism already is propaganda. It's very old, old old-fashioned class war, old-fashioned imperialism. Uh, Neoliberalism is basically the programs that were imposed on what became the third world. You go back to the 18th century, uh, actually the 17th century, the main industrial and commercial centers of the world were India and China. And the difference between the very rich and the very poor was not very great, maybe, you know, three to one in terms of different countries. Uh, but something happened then. Uh, the main thing that happened is that what was called then liberalism was imposed on the colonial, the colonized regions. Uh, they were compelled to follow market principles. Uh, the rich never did. The rich do not tolerate markets for themselves uh, for very good reasons. They're too destructive. Uh, so this... Uh, England, first, England, then the United States, and Germany, France—you know, the rest of the developed countries, Japan—imposed uh, 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 highly state-directed forms of development. Um, the United States was quite striking. You probably all know this history, but uh, it's, it's worth bearing in mind. Uh, the, the, uh, uh, when the colonies were liberated, they got advice on sound economics from the greatest economists of the day like adam smith and the advice was follow the principles of sound economics uh, what we call neoliberalism Uh, don't have tariffs no protection uh, because that you can prove uh, interferes with maximal efficiency Uh, for the colonies that meant uh, use british manufactured goods which are much better than yours Uh, concentrate on what you're good at, uh, what later came to be called comparative advantage. Uh, So produce uh, uh, agricultural raw raw materials, agricultural products, uh, fish, uh, fur, and so on. And uh, take uh, superior British manufactured goods. uh, And uh, crucially don't try to monopolize uh, the commodities uh, for which you have a natural advantage. And the important, most important one in those days, of course, was cotton. The cotton was kind of like the oil of the early Industrial Revolution. Uh, what did the colonies do? Exactly the opposite in every respect. Very high tariffs, block superior British manufacturers, uh, develop your own textile industry later in the century, uh, the steel industry uh, uh, p- blocking superior British Products and so on, uh, all the way across the line, A massive state intervention in the economy, uh, the uh, railroads, you know the conquest of the territory, uh, extermination of the population, uh, conquest of half of Mexico, uh, slavery, you know, which is the most extreme uh, interference with market principles. You can think of uh, monopoly efforts, strong efforts to monopolize cotton. Uh, the Mexican war was fought largely to try to and the annexation of Texas to try to obtain a, a monopoly of cotton. Actually the presidents were very explicit about this. The Jacksonian presidents, Tyler Polk, he said, yes, if we can gain a monopoly of cotton, we can bring England to our feet. Remember, England was the big enemy. That was the powerful military state. It was blocking US expansion. The US couldn't conquer Canada, it couldn't conquer Cuba, the British we're just too strong. But uh, we could bring Britain to our feet if we could monopolize cotton. And it uh, came pretty close. And, of course, over the century, the relations of power shifted. Uh, that's how the United States developed uh, right to the present. If you have a computer, uh, use the Internet, uh, fly an airplane, uh, uh, you know, use uh, pharmaceuticals, you're using the uh, products substantially created in the dynamic state sector of the economy. Right to the present. Uh, well, that's how the United States developed. It's the way England developed before it. It stole technology from the Low Countries, which were more advanced, from Ireland, from India, of course, uh, and uh, uh, used methods that are now blocked by the World Trade Organization and called piracy uh, uh, to, tr- to develop. And it became a, you know, it became the most powerful industrial state. And in fact. Uh, essentially without exception I mean there's city states like Hong Kong are minor exceptions but uh, this is the pattern of development of the rich societies. Meanwhile market systems were forced down the throat of the poor and they became the third world. That's uh, neoliberalism. But It's now an effort so how is it applying to the Nordic capitalism? Same way Europe right now is in the midst of an extremely interesting process by which the uh, Europe is becoming extremely undemocratic. Uh, I mean, uh, the Wall Street Journal, for example, not a great radical journal, pointed out recently that uh, something which is correct. If you take a look at European countries, no matter what government is in power, they follow exactly the same policies. It could be a communist run government, government of the left, government of the right. They follow pretty much the same policies. Because the policies are dictated from Brussels, uh, the policies are determined by Brussels bureaucrats and the Bundesbank, and so on. Uh, the Nordic countries are resisting a little, but it's being imposed by force on the south. Uh, that's the and what it's what it's doing is uh, uh, take. I mean, this policy of austerity during recession. I mean, even the IMF by now recognizes that it's ludicrous. From an economic point of view, Um, IMF economists have been publishing papers recently saying, you know, this is crazy. It's a way to destroy an economy. They understand that. But destroying the economy is not a bad objective because the goal, remember, is to establish a plutonomy and a precariat. The goal is class war. And that means uh, undermine and dismantle the welfare state. The, and, and the Nordic countries are partially uh, bending to this, Sweden, Norway, and so on. They're holding back. But uh, it's the old policy uh, of the... It's basically a policy of class war, uh, which is constantly fought. China, Brazil, Taiwan. Well, that's an interesting story. It, over the last generation, the... Neoliberal programs, sometimes called the Washington Consensus, have been imposed on large parts of the world. But there has been resistance. Uh, One region of resistance was East Asia. Most of East Asia, East and Southeast Asia, have somewhat resisted this. That's why you get the great growth period. Uh, They did not accept the rules of the Washington Consensus, neoliberal rules. So, for example, take... uh, Say, South Korea had a remarkable industrial development, and Taiwan, too, by completely rejecting the rules, very much the way the American colonies had, or Britain had before it, or Japan had after the Meiji Restoration. Just violate the rules uh, radically, I mean, so radically that in South Korea, for example, the export of capital was not only blocked, but you could get the death penalty for it they weren't fooling around Uh, and yes they developed although it's backing off now uh, in many ways Uh, the other region that's extremely significant I think is uh, South America Uh, and that's the last decade I mean South America was a loyal follower of the rules and it had two devastating decades of uh, uh, falling to pieces under neoliberal rules the usual result But in the early, uh, around 2000, it's began to move in a separate direction. And by now, South America is uh, substantially independent. And that's, I think, a change of really historical significance. That's the first time in 500 years uh, since the conquistadors arrived that South America has largely freed itself from imperial domination. Last century or so, that's meant U.S. domination. And it's, it's pretty remarkable the way it's, uh, it, it's, not, it's in economic terms, it's correct, but in other terms, too. So, for example, there was a, a, an, a striking illustration of this was a, a couple of months ago. There was a study by the Open Society Forum of uh, a participation in rendition. A rendition is the most extreme form of torture. That's the form in which, that's the U.S. policy in which, instead of torturing people yourself, you send them to your favorite dictator, uh, Assad, uh, Mubarak, and they'll torture them for you and get out the information you want or whatever you want to get from them. That's rendition. This is the most extreme form of torture that anybody's ever devised. Uh, this was a study of which countries participated in it. And the results were quite interesting. Most of Europe participated, including the Nordic countries like Sweden. They participated actively in uh, ultra-torture. The Middle East, of course, because that's where you sent people to be tortured. Uh, Most of Canada, the United States, obviously. Uh, One region of the world did refuse to participate, South America, uh, which is doubly remarkable. For one thing, it used to just follow U.S. orders. And secondly, while it did, it was the center of world torture. Uh, that's a, a very striking result. And it's show, showing up in other ways, too. If you take a look at uh, hemispheric conferences in the Western Hemisphere, by now uh, the United States and Canada are almost totally isolated. Uh, the last hemispheric conference in, uh, it was in... Cartagena, Colombia, they, uh, they could never reach a consensus on anything because there was a split between the United States and Canada on the one side, the rest of the Hemisphere on the other, on the two major issues. Uh, one major issue was admission of Cuba into the Western Hemisphere. Uh, south of the border, almost unanimous, in favor of it. U.S. and Canada refused. Uh, the other major issue was uh, drugs. Uh, south of the border they want to move towards decriminalization some are going even farther Uh, the United States and Canada refuse Uh, for the US and Canada the drug war is very essential it's basically a race war and it's uh, uh, you know the consequences and uh, they want to hang on to it well you know by now uh, the US and Canada are almost excluded from the hemisphere and this is just a dramatic change, if you think about the recent history, the not-so-recent history of hundreds of years. So yes, there is resistance. Actually, going back to East uh, and Southeast Asia, if you'll notice, there's one country of the region that has not participated in the great growth period, the Philippines. The one country that has been under U.S. control for a century is not one of the Asian tigers.
0: Must be the Haiti of Asia. Pardon? Must be the Haiti of Asia. Um, No, shall we go to questions from the floor? Hello. Um, What are your thoughts on the ongoing talks between John Kerry and uh, Sergei Lavrov on on the so-called Syrian civil war? Syrian civil war.
1: Well... Uh, that's a really tragic situation I mean Syria is simply plunging into suicide and it's not easy to think of anything to do about it at least I haven't heard anything sensible uh, the country is moving towards it uh, seems to be moving towards partition uh, the Kurdish areas have become pretty much autonomous Assad has left them alone uh, there's battles going on between the Kurds and the wide array of rebel forces, they aren't a unified group, and the Kurds have gradually established a region where they pretty much control it, not totally. In fact, they've even declared autonomy. They'll probably try to link themselves up with uh, Iraqi Kurdistan, which is pretty near autonomous. But that's tricky uh, because uh, Barzani, the head of Iraqi Kurdistan, is opposed to the Syrian Kurds. He's trying to make a deal with Turkey for all kind of economic reasons. And a deal with Turkey means suppressing the Kurds. Uh, the Kurds, like most groups, have plenty of internal battles. And uh, uh, how, how that will work out is not so obvious, but that's one part of Syria. Uh, the rest of Syria is simply being partitioned. Well, there's a part that that's being increasingly controlled by the Assad forces, backed by Iran, Russia, Hezbollah. Uh, The other part is uh, under the control of myriad uh, uh, rebel groups which are fighting among themselves. Meanwhile, the Syrian people are being decimated. Uh, It's just uh, devastating. A huge number of refugees. uh, The refugees are being... uh, The refugees issue is a very striking issue. It's interesting to see the way it's discussed in the United States. I mean, here we have what's called a huge immigration problem. You know, we've got these people coming in. Why are they coming? So, for example, why, where I live in around Boston, there's a big Mayan community. These are people coming from Guatemala, the Mayan highlands. Why are they coming to the fleeing? Well, you know, the country was, the region was subjected to a a genocidal war which the U.S. supported. Reagan was a strong supporter of it. Places destroyed, so people flee, uh, come to the rich country. So it's illegal refugees. We have to deport them. Uh, others are coming from Mexico, largely as a result of NAFTA. Predictable effect of NAFTA was wipe out Mexican agriculture. So what happens next? Okay. So we have these illegal immigrants. Uh, Obama has broken all records. He's deported almost 2 million of them. That's the U.S., There are other countries like, say, Lebanon and Jordan and Syria and Iran where they absorb refugees, huge numbers of them. I mean, Lebanon, for example, is a country of 4 million people. It has about 700,000 Palestinians and by now about a million Syrians. Okay, for the poor countries, they're supposed to absorb refugees, actually absorb the refugees that we generate. Uh, So the attack on Iraq... Created, nobody knows, maybe a million and a half, two million refugees. Okay, they're absorbed in the neighboring countries like then Syria, Jordan, Iran, Lebanon. That's their job. Their job is to absorb the refugees that we generate. Our job is to drive out the refugees who we generate. And this is discussed, it's, it's not the enormity of this, it doesn't even begin to be discussed. I mean, maybe you can't do much for Syria. I don't know of a good proposal. But at least we could be taking care of the refugees. I mean, there's you know, about a million of them in Lebanon. Why should Lebanon support them? We should support them. In fact, the battle in Syria has become a part of the growing Sunni-Shia war around the whole region that was inflamed by the United States. I mean, in Iraq, you know, there'd been simmering conflicts, but there was never a sharp uh, Sunni-Shia conflict until after the U.S. invasion, uh, which created it. Now it's spread over the region. It's uh, devastating large parts of the region. We have a large share of responsibility for it. Uh, We're the ones who should be supporting it. Well, these are things you could do. Apart from that, if anybody has a Suggestion. I haven't heard it. In fact, about the only proposal that makes any sense is the Lakhdar Brahimi initiative through the United Nations, uh, which uh, Russia has supported and, going back to Kerry, has mildly supported. Uh, It's a thin read, you know, if not easy to see how it could work, but uh, uh, there's no other proposal that I know
0: of. Uh, Hello. In Europe, do you see a way out of the spiral of austerity, and do you think it could uh, come from democratizing the EU processes? In the EU? Democratizing the EU. Democratizing
1: the EU? Sure. I mean, Europeans don't have to accept this policy. I mean, they have pretty much... uh, There's plenty of resistance, like in Spain and Greece... uh, uh, there's in other parts of europe there's substantial resistance. it has not yet been enough to abort it 's been enough to somewhat restrict the policy so the policy the harshest policies of imposing austerity have been somewhat softened uh, by now the you know the European bank is a little more uh, progressive in its reaction to this i mean it 's kind of hard to realize but the United States has been more progressive than Europe since 2008 and uh, the European bank is kind of backing off a little bit from its uh, harsh policies because of the resistance so sure it can be overcome uh, Greece it's uh, significantly there's significant movements against it Greece of course is being punished worse than most the same with Spain but uh, it's well within the capacity of the Europeans to Protect the achievements of the past generation. I mean, after all, the European welfare state is a non not a trivial contribution to uh, Western civilization, and it's being dismantled consciously. And it can be protected. Of course, you can go beyond that. That's not the limit by any means. So uh, yes, it's. Uh, I, I don't. You know, you know, I mean, it's, it's really a limit of will and commitment. Same here. I mean, we don't have to tolerate what's going on here.
0: We would keep this uh, 40 minutes. We are a few minutes over time. Is that okay? Sure. Oh, please. Well, I asked you
1: a question last night, and let me ask a more critical question. But uh, at the start, making a statement, uh, I believe I have a solution uh, to the question that you ask. Do we have any problem, any solution for Syria? Yes, I think we do. Very brief, please. Yeah. But as long as in this country
0: we have 94 senators, 219 congressmen that receive money from agency that was recognized in 1963 as a tool of the Israeli government, IAPAC, we are not going anywhere. We have surrendered our falling policy
1: entirely. Thank you. That's a, that's a very convenient view in the United States. Convenient because it directs attention away from the centers of power in the United States. And anything that directs attention away from the centers of power is almost guaranteed to be popular. Uh, this is a common view. It's, un- it's understandable. There are leading scholars who've advocated it. John Mearsheimer and Stephen Walt are the main ones. It just doesn't make any sense. I mean, the Israeli, I mean, you're right that many of the uh, people in Congress get benefits from uh, APAC, But practically 100% of them are in the pockets of the funders, the corporate sector. That's how they got elected there 's a very close correlation between campaign funding and electoral victory, uh, very close in fact in the House of representatives it 's almost a straight line, a uh, few deviants here and there, are like bernie sanders but it's uh, you know it 's almost uniform and these are this is big money it 's not APAC APAC 's an ethnic lobby you know it 's of some significance, but it doesn 't begin to compare with the major lobbies. I mean, the military lobby itself could put APAC out of business in two minutes if they wanted. It's way more powerful. Why don't they do it? They don't want to. Yeah. They support APAC's policies. Uh, they benefit from it. it Take, say, Lockheed Martin. Uh, when the United States gives $3 billion of uh, aid to Israel, what's called aid for purchase of military equipment, a lot of that goes right back to Lockheed Martin in Two ways, first of all, they get paid for uh, developing you know the f one thirty five and so on. Uh, they get paid by the u s taxpayer via Israel. Secondly, uh, when we give a couple of billion dollars of military aid to Israel, uh, Saudi Arabia comes along and says we want ten times as much uh, for ourselves and Lockheed martin isn 't very happy to provide. Saudi Arabia with uh, second-rate equipment, uh, which they don't know how to operate anyhow, and they're getting a sixty billion dollar aid grant as compared with Israel's uh, thirty billion, three three billion dollars. All terrific for the military, uh, uh, directly for the mili- for military industry. Uh, furthermore, there are much, there are extremely close interactions. Uh, you, some of you may have seen one of the most important. Uh, leaks from WikiLeaks didn't get much publicity but it was quite important it was a list of uh, a Pentagon list of strategic sites high, super high value strategic sites around the world that have to be protected you know, above all else uh, one of them was uh, Rafael Military Industries right outside Haifa uh, major military complex uh, closely integrated with the U.S. military. It's one of the places where drone technology was developed, for example. It's uh, so closely integrated that Rafael uh, tr- uh, transferred its management offices to Washington. It's an Israeli industry. Its offices are in Washington because that's where the money is. Uh, and that's just symptomatic of extremely close relations. Uh, High-tech industry in the United States, like, say, IBM and so on, are increasing their investments in Israel, not because they love Jews. It's just a good place for them to invest. Actually, Warren Buffett just spent a couple billion dollars picking up some industry there and said it's the best place to invest outside the United States. And it's... uh, Uh, close intelligence connections and so on so why doesn't the military lobby uh, stand against AIPAC because they support the policies Uh, they do Uh, the same is true of uh, uh, other sectors and in fact when the US opposes Israeli policy which happens regularly AIPAC disappears in fact it's happening right now in front of our eyes uh, AIPAC's leading goal was to try to pa- get the Senate uh, to pass legislation that would essentially block the Iran-U.S. negotiations. I mean, it's uh, uh, in this particular case, APAC backed off, but it's happened over and over. I mean, even George W. Bush, very pro-Israel, uh, there was one point at which uh, there was a real conflict with Israel. Israel's is a military-based uh, economy, high-tech military production. They want export markets. The big export market, of course, is China. So they've been dying to get into the China market. The U.S. won't let them. Uh, the uh, most recent occasion was 2005 under Bush uh, when uh, Israel was trying to upgrade uh, the missiles for China and uh, the U.S.-Bush uh, the administration said you can't do it. They said they were going to do it anyway, at which point the U.S. came down on them like a ton of bricks. Uh, it insisted, blocked visits from high-level Israeli officials. They were not allowed to visit the United States. And they were compelled to issue a formal apology for having tried to do this uh, and to pass legislation blocking it. Real humiliation. You didn't hear a peep from APAC out of this. The reason is they're not idiots. They know they cannot confront U.S. power. And uh, when there is a conflict, they back down. This happens uh, time after time. I could, for time, I could give you a long list. So there's good reasons for... Uh, uh, but I think we should be cautious about initially about any proposal that directs attention away from the centers of American power. It's always going to be convenient to accept a proposal like that. It doesn't prove that it's wrong, but it's an initial reason for skepticism, I think.
0: One more question, please. Hi.
1: Hi. Thank you, Professor Chomsky. Um, in terms of reigniting the democratic processes here at home, uh, what role do you think whistleblowing has to play? With uh, whistleblowing. Whistleblowing.
0: What role do you think reigniting
1: reigniting the democratic process here?
0: Reigniting democracy
1: here. Um, Also, do you think whistleblowing will ever be institutionalized so that people like Snowden or journalists like Glenn Greenwald don't have to run away for their lives? Sure, we should. uh, I mean, we should try to democratize the society. It's not impossible, after all. I mean, it used to be. There used to be a quip. I think maybe it went back to C. Wright Mills. I don't recall that the United States is a one-party state, the business party, with two factions, the Democrats and the Republicans, which are different. That's not entirely true anymore. It's now it's still a one-party state, the business party, but there's only one faction, and it's not Democrats. It's moderate Republicans, uh, the people who are. The Democratic Party today is overwhelmingly what used to be called moderate Republicans. And meanwhile, the Republican Party, so-called, has just drifted totally off the spectrum. They're not part of the parliamentary system anymore. And that's actually recognized by the most uh, prestigious uh, conservative commentators. So, for example, Norman Ornstein, famous uh, conservative political analyst very distant, American Enterprise Institute you know, right wing uh, he simply describes the Republican Party today as a, a radical insurgency which has abandoned uh, parliamentary principles and you can see it in the last eight years their only policies have been of course to enrich the super rich and to block anything that's done in Washington period that's been very successful remarkably successful a uh, report came out I think yesterday in the New York Times of the uh, uh, st- looking at recent polls on this and they're very interesting Turns out they're talking about the midterm elections that are coming up there a lot of polls about it uh, uh, the public largely supports the policies of the Democrats which the Democrats themselves don't support but the <laughs> supposed part you know like higher taxes on the rich and you know care and so on. public supports those. At the same time, the public prefers the Republicans. And when you looked at the reasons, it's because the public is infuriated about what's called dysfunctional Washington. Now, the press is always talking about this. Gridlock in Washington. Dysfunctional Washington. Uh, dysfunctional Washington means the Republicans are committed to block anything that happens. Okay, so it's dysfunctional Washington blamed on Democrats. Public prefers the Republicans, but opposes their policies. Okay, this is really clever politics. It makes people believe there's a political system. Uh, People are driven into acting in extremely irrational ways. It's not the first time. Uh, So, for example, in 2012, there were... 2012 elections there were polls uh, you know a ton of polls go on They're very interesting they uh, on attitude you know attitudes towards policy issues and towards political preferences and it's striking to see how they separate so for example one major study of uh, southern uh, uh, southern Tea Party people you know that that category people identified themselves that way Uh, most of them are social Democrats uh, they support higher spending on uh, health, on education, on uh, uh, aid to the poor—not welfare, because Reagan demonized that—but aid to the poor, you know, things like that. Uh, but uh, higher taxes on the rich. Uh, but at the same time, they re- support Republican, the Republican Party, which is exactly the opposite. It's uh, you take a place like actually Calif. There was a study of California recently, uh, which. Uh, Investigated attitudes towards uh, the big what they call big government you know taxes and stuff uh, there was a very close correlation between the amount of aid that people got from the federal government and their opposition to the federal government and so when you get to the kind of you know rural poor areas they' are getting an awful lot of aid from the federal government and they want to get the government off their backs you know. I mean, to try to instill these kinds of attitudes into people is a real achievement. And that's the opening, to get back to your first point, to the 99%. You can overcome this. You know, this is not like fighting uh, the secret police. You know, you don't get thrown into prisons for uh, getting people to understand these things. This is an opportunity for real uh, organizing work, which can be done.
0: Noam, I noticed today and in the past days people cherish you for your contributions people love you for your work thank you very much thank you